Hey everybody, we'd like to welcome you to the Ewok Podcast. We hope your day's going good. This is the official podcast of the East Wilton Union Church located in Wilton, Maine. And today we're going to hear a message from Robbie Locke, our senior pastor. We hope that it's a blessing to your life and that God uses it to help you walk closer with him. And our prayer is that you would grow closer to him in truth and in love. Well, without further ado, here's Pastor Robbie. Turn in your Bibles with me, if you have them, to Colossians chapter 1, verses 12b actually through 14. We're going to finish up one little point that we didn't quite get to last Sunday morning as we were finishing up last week's message. I just want to remind you of the things that we have seen already. We described this passage, verses 12 to 14, as the heritage of the saints. These are the great blessings that you and I have received because of the work of Jesus Christ in the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. The first thing we saw in verse 12 is that he made us meet, that is, he qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And if you remember, I said that partakers of the inheritance means that we have a portion, there is a part of the inheritance that is specifically for each and every one of us in heaven. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. And where he is, is in light, in heaven. Aren't you looking forward to getting to heaven one day, being with the Lord, living with him forever? So he made us meet. He made us to qualify because as sinners, we couldn't go to heaven. But he has now qualified us by transforming our lives. Secondly, we saw that he has delivered us from the power of darkness. The word power here is delegated power. We know that the devil, Satan, has certain authority over the earth today and that he is able to control unbelievers by blinding their eyes. It says he takes captive people at his will. But the Bible says for the Christian that you and I have been delivered. We have been rescued from the power of darkness. Aren't you glad that Satan doesn't have control over your life today? We also saw that he has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. We were part of this world, which is a kingdom of darkness ruled by Satan. But we have been taken out of this world and placed into the kingdom of God's dear Son, the Lord Jesus. And then lastly, we saw we have redemption through His blood. Redemption has to do with being purchased out of the bond slavery of sin. That the Lord Jesus paid the price to set us free when He willingly laid down His life. He shed His blood that we might be delivered from the power and the penalty and the presence of sin. Those are the four things we saw last week. And there was one more that I want to talk to you about this morning before we move on to the next passage. And it says in verse 14, this is the final blessing that we have received, the forgiveness of our sins. Let's just bow for prayer. 
our God and Father, we're approaching your throne again, Lord. We don't want to come to this word without first coming to you, the author. We don't want to come and try to figure out for ourselves what this means. We want your spirit to be our teacher. Lord, I have labored for hours and hours over this and particularly the next passage that we're beginning today. And Lord, I know that I have many hours yet of study that I need to do. And I am conscious today of how utterly dependent I am upon the Holy Spirit to communicate the truth in a way that will be helpful, that will be practical, and a blessing to your people. So Lord, you do the work. You do the work because I can't. I can only be an instrument, a mouthpiece, and I pray that your spirit will control my lips, my tongue, so that what I share is truly in accord with your word. Bless it to our hearts. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. One of the great blessings for the child of God is that we have been forgiven of all our sins. I want to put an emphasis on that word, all. <laughs> Because I know a lot of believers who sometimes look into their past and they remember certain things they've done in the past and they may have confessed that to God. In fact, they have confessed it to God and yet they feel guilty about it. They carry the burden of that sin. And I want you to know, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that when Jesus forgave you of your sins, he released you from the bondage of that sin. God doesn't want you living in guilt. God doesn't want you living with this, this sense of self-condemnation. He wants you to understand that He not only took your sins away, but He delivered you from sin's power. Praise God, that's true. Forgiveness, this particular Greek word, means to release as from bondage. And we were all slaves of sin, the Bible says. But it comes from the root word, the Greek word, which means to send from oneself, to bid go away or depart. When the Lord took your sins, he took them away from you. The Bible says that the Son of God was manifested, 1 John 3, 5, to take away our sins. Folks, you're not carrying your sins today. Jesus took them all away. But I want you to see where he took them, what he did. Now there's an illustration in the Old Testament that I think is helpful. It is referred to as the Old Testament scapegoat. Let me read this passage and then talk to you about it for a moment. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. So there is first and foremost a goat that is taken and sacrificed on the altar, burnt as a burnt sacrifice, and that is to deal with the problem of the sin of the Israelites. But then notice, but the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. The first goat, is sacrificed on the altar. It loses its life. Blood is shed, and that is for the forgiveness of sins. But they take another goat, and the high priest lays his hand upon that goat, and there's the sense in which he is identifying the sins of the people with this goat by putting his hands on that goat. 
Then they take the goat and they lead it way out into the wilderness, so far away from the people that the goat can never find its way back to the people of God. Now that is meant to be a picture for us of what Jesus did. He died and paid for our sins, but he's also taken our sins away. He separated our sins from us. I want you to see what the Bible says about that. How far does God put our sins away from us? Well, it tells us first, our sins are as far as the east is from the west. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because you keep going east and you'll go east and east and east and east and it'll never stop. If you go west, you'll go west and west and west and it'll never stop. By saying he separates them as far as the east is from the west, it means they are so far away from us that they'll never again ever be found. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far have he removed our transgressions from us. And brethren, listen, when you get to heaven and stand at the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord is not going to bring up your sins. He's going to bring up your works and evaluate whether they are worthy of reward or not, and he will reward your works according to how you have done them. If you did them for his glory, there will be reward. If you did them for your own glory, there will be loss of reward. But there is nothing to do with sin. Sin was dealt with forever at the cross, and he's taken our sins away. They're as far as the east is from the west. I like this one. He takes our sins, and he puts them in the depths of the deepest sea. Micah 9, uh, 7, 19. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Now this is very interesting. I happened to be watching a program the other day where they talked about at what level you find certain things in the ocean. Talked about certain animals, how deep they can swim to, how deep man can go, how deep a submarine can go. And they kept going down farther and farther and farther and farther. And I wish now I had written down some of the specifics, but what I remember is that the lowest point that has been discovered and reached by man through machine, because man can't get down there himself, but through machine is 10,800 meters deep is the ocean, the bottom of the ocean. 10,800 meters. But they concluded by saying, we have no idea, in fact, we believe that there are many other places that are so much deeper, but we just have no ability to be able to find those places. Folks, I want you to think for just a moment and imagine that when the Lord saved you, he took all of your sins and he says, I'm headed to the ocean with these things. And I'm going to put them so far down that none of you can ever get to them. Isn't that glorious? And so we have the forgiveness of sins. What five blessings, right, in this passage that we have talked about last week and then concluding this week. Now, I want to move on to the next section. 
The next section of this epistle is verses 15 through 29, and I want to assure you right now that there will be at least three, if not four, messages. So we're going to be in this passage for some time. This is probably, in my mind, one of the most difficult, one of the most complex, and one of the most controversial doctrinal sections in all of the Word of God. The verses that we're going to study today have been used since the very first century right up until today by the cults to deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And so I want to take time with you today and to begin talking to you about Jesus Christ because we need to understand who he is as a person and what is the work that he has accomplished accomplished on our behalf. We need to know who Jesus was and who he is. We need to know why Jesus came into the world. And we need to understand what his present ministry is for us in heaven. And we're going to get answers to all of those questions in this passage. Now, I want to very quickly review for you the false teaching that was beginning to work its way into the church in Colossae and why Paul writes this letter to confront this error. These people, these false teachers, denied both truths. They denied the humanity of Jesus and they denied the deity of Jesus. They taught that Christ was one of many lesser descending spirit beings that emanated from God. Now, I'm going to try to illustrate this for you. Have you ever been out to a lake and you took a rock and you tossed the rock into the lake? What happens? It begins these little circles, right? They begin moving out farther and farther and farther. Now, these false teachers call those emanations that came out of God. In other words, in the beetle, the rock that you throw in, that's God. But then there's that first little wave. The problem is, the first little wave is not quite as good as the original. Then you have a second little wave. That's even a little farther away from God, and it's a little bit worse. It's a little bit inferior. And then you've got the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth. My understanding is that they believe that Elohim was about number 52. And then Jesus was somewhere along after that, that he was an emanation, one of these spirit beings that came out of God, but he's not God, so they deny his deity. They taught a form of philosophic dualism, which basically said spirit is good, material is evil. So that your spirit can be good within you, but your body will always be evil. Now, we do know that the body can be evil, right? We can commit sins with our bodies. But remember one thing, and we talked about this in Sunday school this morning. Someday, God's not only redeemed your soul. He's not only saved your soul. He's going to save your body one day. Amen, brother. How many want a new body? Huh? He's going to save your body someday. And what he's showing us is that though men are evil, and by the way, we're evil in our spirit. Until we get saved, God brings our spirit to life and he gives us his own life. 
And our bodies one day are going to be transformed. But what they said was, if Christ is God, he could never come in a body because the body's always evil. So if he is Christ in a body, he can't be God. Impossible. And if he's a human being, he's just wicked and sinful, just like all the rest of us because he has a material body. So they deny both his humanity and his deity. The good emanation, like Christ, could never take on a body composed of evil matter. To say that God could become man in their minds was absolutely absurd because that would be to say that God became evil. Now the difference is, is that the Lord Jesus Christ was born with a human nature, a human body, but without sin. And that's the difference between Jesus and us. We are born with a sinful nature, but Jesus was not born with a sinful nature. God was his father, and the nature passes from the father to the children. And so because God is God, Jesus Christ is not only God, but he's now perfect man. And so that's the difference. What I want you to see is that the key phrase for this entire section is found in verse 18. We're not going to get there today. I'm not even sure we're going to get through 17 today. But notice what it says at the end of verse 18. That in all things, he, and the he there is Jesus, that in all things, he might have the preeminence. That Jesus Christ would be in position number one. That he would be the priority. That he would be preeminent in everything. And by the way, it talks about in all things, in the context there. He's talking about in all of the creation that exists, he is priority over all. Paul's intent was to give Christ his proper place. Brethren, listen to me. Look at me. Look at me. I know I'm not good looking, but please look for just a moment. Our highest purpose should be to give Christ his proper place in this church. And in our lives, this church should be all about Jesus Christ and not about you and me. We exist for him. He does not exist for us. Now, does he help us? Are we dependent upon him? Absolutely. But he made man for this reason, that man might glorify him. And so we need to give Christ his proper place. And in this passage, he's going to talk in three areas. Number one, in the Godhead. And his basic conclusion is this. Jesus Christ is equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. They are three in one, and through this he's teaching the Trinity. Secondly, in creation. Jesus is not part of creation. He is the creator and is sovereign over the creation. That we will learn in this passage. And lastly, in the church. What place does Jesus hold in the church? The Bible is very clear. Jesus holds the place of head of the church. 
We are the body. We are members individually, and together we make up the body of Christ, but he's the head, and the head is the one who's in control. It's the head who is to do the leading. So Paul's intent here is to make sure that Jesus is given his proper place. Now, the Bible is supremely the book about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of things in the Bible, all kinds of subjects and things, but Jesus Christ is the center. He's the supremely important one throughout the entire Word of God. In the Old Testament, we find the record of the preparation for the coming of Jesus. Jesus doesn't come until the Gospels, New Testament, but he is prepared for from Genesis to Malachi. Now, I can prove that to you from Jesus' own words. Luke 24, 47, beginning with Moses. You remember the day that Jesus walked with the two disciples on the Emmaus Road? And he talked to them about himself, and it says this, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets. And that phrase, Moses and the prophets, is the Old Testament scripture. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning what? Concerning himself, where? In all the scriptures. Now that tells me a couple of important things. That if I want to find Jesus, I can find him in the Old Testament. And number two, the entire Old Testament is inspired of God and recognized by the Lord Jesus as the scriptures. So the Old Testament is authoritative scripture for you and for me. So the Old Testament records the preparation for his coming. The Gospels present him as God in human flesh. We have his birth. We have his life. And ultimately his death and resurrection from the dead. We find in the Gospels that Jesus came with a purpose of saving sinners from this world. In Acts, the message of salvation in Christ begins to be spread throughout the world. That's a history book in the New Testament. The first century where the gospel begins to be preached. And where does it start? It starts in Jerusalem with the Jews. In Acts chapter 8, it goes to the Samaritans. In Acts chapter 10, it goes to the Gentiles. And then in chapter 19, there's a small group of followers of John the Baptist who somehow had never heard about Jesus. Somehow they had missed out on that teaching and they are reached also and brought in. And so the book of Acts presents the message of salvation through Christ that begins in Jerusalem and spreads to the ends of the earth. The epistles detailed the theology of Christ's work. If you want to understand what Jesus accomplished, study the epistles. And probably the greatest book in that regard gives us the most detail is the book of Romans. If you want to understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you, study Romans. But also the personification of Christ in his body, the church. This is where we learn about what the church is and what the church is supposed to accomplish. And we are extensions of Jesus at work in the world. Aren't you glad that you can be a part of God's team? Be a part of taking the message to the world? And then lastly, Revelation presents Christ on the throne, reigning as what? King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day we're going to see him in that way, right? He's going to literally be ruling and reigning. 
and we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years, and then in the eternal kingdom we will rule and reign with the Lord. That's what the Bible's about. It's all about Jesus. Yes, there's a lot of other subjects covered as well, but what the Bible starts in Genesis 3.15 is the first prophecy of Jesus, and from there right through the Old Testament, it's all about Christ, and then from the Gospels on about Jesus coming and all that he's accomplishing through the church, which will culminate one day in his ruling and reigning. You want to find Jesus? Open the Bible. You will find him there. Christ's preeminence or superiority is revealed in several different ways in verses 19 to 29. I have three of them prepared, but see, I have very little time left today. So we'll see how far we get. But the first thing is, Jesus is preeminent because he is the image of God. He is the image of God. Now, we need to understand what this means. You remember I said that they taught that Jesus was one of a series of lesser spirits descending in sequential inferiority from God. In other words, the farther you got away from God, the more inferior you were. And Jesus was way out there somewhere in their minds, the false teachers. But Paul is going to describe Jesus in terms of deity, and he's going to describe Jesus in terms of created things, his relationship to them. And these two truths are absolutely fundamental if you want to be saved. If you do not understand these truths, you cannot be saved. You can't be saved without knowing that Jesus is God. If he's not God, he can't save you. And if you believe he's just a created being, we're in big trouble, folks. So we need to understand these principles. The word image in the Greek, and I think you can see that if you kind of pronounce that out, it's icon. That's the word we have in English, I-C-O-N, icon, which means an image. The Bible says that he is the image of God, literally an exact reproduction in every respect, a derived image. Now, what does that mean? Basically, what he is saying is, all that God is, Jesus is. All that God is, Jesus is. Now, unlike man, Jesus is the perfect, absolutely accurate image of God. Now, this word image, the same Greek word appears two other times in the New Testament. In Matthew 22:20, 20, it speaks of Caesar's portrait that was on one side of the coins. When you looked at the coin, you saw the face of Caesar. And it was a, an, a representation of him. It's also used in Revelation 13, 14, when it talks about the statue of the Antichrist that is going to be raised up in the temple during the tribulation period. And that image will be a reflection of the Antichrist himself. It will be an image of the Antichrist. So unlike man, Jesus Christ is a perfect, absolutely accurate image of God. Now understand this. The Bible teaches that man was created in the image of God, right? You do know that, right? Man is created in the image of God. But we need to understand what that means. We were created in the image of God, but he didn't make a whole bunch of gods. 
there are only certain aspects in which we are in the image of God. And I'm not going to go into a great detail about that today. That's another whole study. But I think one of the, there are two things in my mind that when you talk about being made in the image of God, two things come forward. Number one, he said that we will rule over the earth even as God does. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And the second thing is that we possess the three characteristics of personality. Intellect, emotion, and will. And in that sense, we are like God. We're the image of God. There are other things too. Many have several suggestions as to what the image of God is. But what I need you to understand is this. We were made in the image of God, but we were not made gods. And number two, when sin came into the world, the image of God in man was marred. And what salvation in its fullness will do one day is restore to us perfectly the image of God. We don't have it yet. But we will one day. But you and I, get this straight, you and I will never be gods. Never. There is a cult out there today, very popular, growing all the time, and they believe that one day they will be gods with spirit wives having spirit children and they will be ruling over their own planet someday. I say that because they are one of the groups that takes this passage of scripture out of context and they reach the conclusion that God made us so that we would become what? We become gods eventually. Sorry, bad news. You will never be a god but you will be like Jesus in character and in conduct. And that we can all look forward to. Jesus did not become the image of God at the incarnation. He has been the image of God from all eternity. Now we know that until Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb of Mary, the second person of the Trinity was known as the Word. He was not called the Son. He was called the Word. And then he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and the Bible says, this day, God speaking says, this day have I begotten thee. And in that sense, historically, Jesus became the Son of God. And today, while He is still the Word of God, when we think of Jesus now, we think of Him as what? As the Son. Because He became the Son through His incarnation. God the Father, miraculously, we don't know exactly how, but through the Spirit, conceived in the womb of Mary, and God conceived a Son. The Bible said He would be called a holy being. And he would be called the Son of God. In Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is described in this way. Jesus is described as the radiance of God's glory. He is the radiance or the manifestation. What is radiance? It's when the sun is beaming out its light. He is the one who manifests, who reveals, who beams out. The glory of God. Jesus Christ reflects God's 
attributes just like the sunlight reflects the sun. It also says in Hebrews chapter 1 that he is the exact representation of God's nature. The exact representation of God's nature. Therefore, Jesus is fully God in three senses. He is fully God in essence. Essence means in substance, in his nature, in his being. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all exactly the same. There is one essence. There are not three essences, there's one essence. And that one essence is God. But within that one essence is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they cannot be divided. Cannot be. So Jesus is fully God. While he was on the earth, he was still fully God in substance, nature, and being. Secondly, Jesus is fully God in character. You know, it's interesting that when Isaiah saw the Lord in his temple, the angels were singing to God. And do you remember what they were singing? They repeated one word three times. What was it? Holy, holy, holy. It was an interesting They didn't say, love, love, love. They didn't say, mercy, mercy, mercy. They said, holy, holy, holy. And when the Hebrews repeated something twice, it put emphasis on it. When they repeated something three times, it was like, if you miss this, you're in trouble. This is big stuff. This is very important. And he says of God, God, you are what? Holy, holy, holy. Listen, Jesus could have been full of love. He could have been full of mercy. But if he wasn't sinless and perfect, he could never be our Savior. So Jesus is fully God in character. He's holy without sin. And thirdly, Jesus is fully God in generation. In other words, he has always existed. He's the eternal word. And listen, Jesus didn't stop being the word when he came into the world. He's still the eternal word. But he's now the son. Look at this verse here. John 14, 8 and 9, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long with you, and hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath what? Hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? The point Jesus is making here is when you ask for the Father, you are also asking for who? For me. Because I can never be separated from the Father. And the Father can never be separated from me. And I can never be separated from the Spirit. And the Spirit can never be separated from me. The Father can never be separated from the Spirit. And the Spirit can never be separated from the Father. They are one essence. And yet the three of them exist, coexist within the one essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He came, in fact, one of the principal reasons Jesus came in the world was to reveal the Father. You see, God is only one time in the Old Testament called Father. There's one verse that I know of in the Old Testament 
where it speaks of Israel as being his son and God being the father. It's only one time. But the idea of father did not come to the world until Jesus became the son of God in his miraculous conception and birth. And then when they said, Jesus, teach us to pray, what did he say? Here's how you begin. Our Jehovah? No. Our Adonai? No. Our what? Our Father. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit has given us the spirit of adoption, whereby now we say, Father, Abba, Father, which is like saying, Daddy. Isn't this glorious? Now let me explain this before you start shooting arrows, okay? Kenneth Wiest, who is a student of the Greek language, he has a wonderful book, actually a set of books, I think, in which he examines the Greek words of the New Testament and seeks to explain them in the light of other scriptures that use the same word and so on. This is what he says. The Lord Jesus is therefore the image of God in the sense that as the Son of the Father, He is derived by eternal generation in a birth that never took place because it always was. Now that may sound crazy, but just let me say it again and then let me try to illustrate it. He is derived by eternal generation. That means he's always been in a birth that never took place because it always was. Now how could it never take place and yet always be? Let me try to give you an illustration. I want you to think about you as a Christian today. If you are truly saved today, you are one of the elect. When did you become one of the elect? The day you got saved? No, you did not. You became one of the elect before the foundation of the world. How do I know that? Because the Bible says God took your name, he wrote it in the Lamb's Book of Life before he even made the world. So you have always, in the eyes of the omniscient God, you have always been part of the elect. And God has known you from all eternity. Now, having said that, you did not become one of the elect historically until the day you received Jesus Christ. In other words, you were elect positionally. God knew that you were going to get saved, but you weren't saved until you got saved. Do you understand what I'm saying here? You weren't saved until you got saved. So in the historical sense, you were not elect officially until you got saved. And that was the culmination of God's plan to bring you to salvation. But from God's perspective, and remember this, God doesn't live in time. He's not confined to the first moment of creation till the last moment of creation. He lives way out here in eternity. Remember with God, there is no past. With God, there is no future. God says when he describes himself, I am that I am. He lives in the eternal present tense. So, having said that, now let me try to illustrate with Christ. Christ eternally is the Word. 
He is described in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But, in the infinite omniscience of God, what does that mean? That God knows everything without limit. There is no future and past for God. There's only the eternal present. So in the infinite omniscience of God, Jesus is also the Son of God. But historically, here's the difference. Historically, Jesus became the Son in time. On the day that he was begotten by God by miraculous conception in the womb of Mary. So in other words, God, before Jesus was conceived, knew that there was a son. He just hadn't been born yet as a son. So in his omniscience, the son has always existed because God knows everything. But historically, he became the son literally, historically, when he was conceived in the womb of Mary. And now, instead of referring to him as the Word, though we still can, but we generally refer to Jesus as the Son because it's through Jesus and our connection to Jesus that we have connection with the Father. That's why we are heirs of God and joint heirs with who? With Jesus Christ. Now, I say all of that because I know, you know, when we, we've had some conversations about, you know, is Jesus the eternal Son of God? And all I'm saying to you today is that Jesus, from the perspective of God, he's always existed as Son in the sense that it was part of the program of God to have his Son born in this world. He was known as the Word before, never called the Son, until the historical moment. And since that time, when we think of Jesus, we think of him as the Son of God. Psalm 2 and verse 7, my last verse. And this is only point one, and we're done. So we'll pick up with point two next week. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Now notice what he says. What? Today. Not yesterday. Not a million years ago. Today I have begotten you. And that was the moment of conception in the womb of Mary. Aren't you glad that God makes these things clear in his word? Puts these scriptures here so that we can understand these truths. Well, we're going to leave there for today. We're going to pick up next week with Christ is the first... Oh, this is, this is the tough one. He is the firstborn of every creature. What does that mean? I don't know. I only have about 200 pages of notes, so we'll see how far we get. I'm joking. I'm just joking. All right, we'll talk about that next week if Jesus tarries. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for the Word of God today. One of the things we have learned, one of the things that we know, Lord is that Jesus Christ is God. He is the image of God, the exact reproduction. He's the only perfect reproduction of God while he was man on earth. All that God is, Jesus was and is. And we're so thankful that we have had the Father revealed to us through the Son. 
And if we've seen the Son, we've seen the Father. Thank you, Lord, for that. And I thank you so much, Lord, that Christ came into this world to be our Savior. But he had to be your son first. He had to be the perfect son. And then he would qualify to bear our sins in his own body as the perfect substitute. And he came not just to forgive our sins, he came to take them away and bury them in the deepest sea. To carry them away from us as far as the east is from the west. Lord, we can't do anything but praise your glorious name for this truth. Bless your word to our hearts, Father. We'll be careful to praise you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. And this has been the Ewok Podcast with Pastor Robbie Locke. We hope it's been challenging and exuberating and uplifting in your life as it has mine. We hope it helps you walk closer with God and understand Him better and the truth He's laid out for us in His Word. If you've really enjoyed this sermon or it's had a great impact upon your life, leave us an email or go to our Facebook page or our website and just leave a comment that we might know exactly how it's impacted you. It's very uplifting for us to see those things, for it helps us to push forward to continue doing these. Well, that's all I got for time. Until next week, God bless.